Happy holidays, all you boys and girls out there in Radio Film School land. If you're wondering why I'm sounding like Mr. Smooth R&B Disc Jockey, it's because it's early in the morning, the day after Christmas, and I'm trying not to wake the family. This marks the last official episode of 2015, and I didn't want to end the year without giving out a few special thanks and shoutouts. First and foremost, to all of you who followed the show and rated it on iTunes, thank you, thank you, thank you. The fact that any of you would, one, listen to the show, and then two, take the time to rate it means a lot to me, so thanks. Second, huge thanks to our sponsor, Song Freedom, for believing in a brand new podcast. Remember, you can also support the show by supporting our sponsors. If you haven't already got your free song from them, head on over to songfreedom.com radio and use offer code radio to unlock your free standard go-level license worth $30. Third, I want to thank Rob Hardy, the writer at No Film School who wrote the great piece about us when we first launched. Many of you discovered the show because of that coverage and I'm grateful. And last but not least, all the wonderful guests who've taken the time to be on the show and contribute their voice to this wonderful conversation. I'm so excited for what we have in store for 2016. I know it's going to be our biggest year ever. Which on the surface seems obvious as the show's barely four months old. But nonetheless, stay tuned for many great interviews, specials, and even podcast collaborations. Before we get into today's episode, I wanted to give you a heads up that later we discuss a South Park episode that has some pretty provocative content regarding stem cell research and physically challenged individuals. So if you're sensitive to that, be forewarned. Also, after the credits, I play the rest of my conversation with JD about South Park. It's funny and insightful as he dishes on how South Park is made, and we go deeper into what makes them great storytellers. One last thing, in addition to this being the holidays, we're in the middle of a move, which is a lot of fun, as you can imagine, so expect our next regular episode January 12th. I'll see about putting up some bonus interview episodes in the meantime, so make sure you're subscribed to iTunes, Stitcher, or your favorite podcatcher to know when new shows drop. That's it for now. Until next time, have a safe and happy new year. Welcome to another episode of Shortens. These are short, mini documentary episodes and stories about all things cinema to hold you over until the next episode of the main show. If you want to know the history behind the term shortens, check the website. Enjoy. You're listening to Dare Dreamer FM, the sound of creative expression. My Saturday mornings as a kid growing up in the 70s were like a young boy's dream. My mother, who worked multiple midnight shifts as a registered nurse at Cedar sinai Medical Center, used Saturday mornings to catch up on some much-needed sleep. So for about six hours every morning, starting at around 6 a.m., my brother and I had full reign over the house. We ate all the food that we wanted and watched TV nonstop, pretty much all day long. Remind me to tell you the story of how I ate three-quarters of a loaf of bread in one morning, eating peanut butter and jelly sandwiches nonstop, to the point that I puked my guts out and didn't touch another PB&J until high school. Oh, okay. I guess I just told you the story. Okay, never mind. Our Saturday morning segment of binge TV watching was jam-packed with all my favorite Saturday morning cartoons. Scooby-Doo, Fat Albert, The Jetsons, Yogi Bear, The Super Friends, Schoolhouse Rock, and of course, the one and only... Bugs Bunny. Hey, look out! Stop! I'm gonna hurt someone.
one with that old shotgun. Without a doubt, perhaps the best of them all was Bugs and the Gang. And even now, if I were to rewatch some of those old animated staples today, those Merry Melodies and Looney Tunes shorts with Bugs, Daffy, Porky, and Elmer would definitely hold up the most. I guess that's no surprise since they never truly were made for kids in the first place. I love to sing about the moon and the June and the spring. I love to sing. It should come as no surprise to you to know that those animated shorts we enjoyed so much as a kid well, those of you my age anyway, were actually short films that would play at the beginning of theatrical movies back in the 30s, 40s, and 50s, and so on. Not unlike the short films that Pixar releases with its features today. So all the reference to female chickens fighting over crooning roosters that look like a young Frank Sinatra, or animated versions of Humphrey Bogart pouting at a bar, or allusions to the war effort with satirical caricatures of Hitler, were totally lost to me as a kid. I just knew that they all cracked me up. In my humble opinion, I think as we entered the 60s and the 70s and the 80s when the cartoons were indeed, one, made for television, and two, specifically made for kids, they became less long-lasting, for lack of a better term. Animated cinema created for adults, but with kids in mind, just seemed to transcend time and culture. The themes explored were darker, more universal. I mean, think about it. The dragon singing Sleeping Beauty could be terrifying to a little kid or the night on Bald Mountain scene from Fantasia. Speaking of Disney, they're actually a great example of this. Throughout the 80s, you saw a steep decline in the popularity and performance of the Disney animated feature. The last one I remember seeing as a teen was The Black Cauldron, and I really couldn't tell you what that movie was about. I think it was a Merlin story, but I could be wrong. I do remember there was a Black Cauldron in it, though. For years, the studio that pretty much invented the animated feature-length art form became somewhat of a has-been. Then in 1989, a little movie about a Hans Christian Andersen adaptation turned it all around. When's it my turn? Wouldn't I love, love to explore that shore up above, out of the sea? Disney's Little Mermaid put the studio back on the map as a real contender in the animated feature space. Little Mermaid was followed by Aladdin, then Beauty and the Beast, which I believe was the first animated feature to be nominated for Best Picture, and the movie that prompted the creation of the Best Animated Feature category at the Oscars. Then there was Hercules, and of course The Lion King, perhaps more than any other, exemplify this idea of infusing these animated features with an adult sensibility. Mufasa, quick! Stampede in the gorge. Simba's down there. Simba. I distinctly remember sitting in the theater and hearing the little girl in the seat in front of me, no more than six or seven, sadly say to her mom, Why isn't Mufasa moving, mommy? Dad? Dad, come on. You gotta get up. Dad. And when noble and brave Mufasa played his final role in the circle of life to become food for the antelope, that little girl learned a lesson I'm sure she did not soon forget. That death is real. The best animated films are the ones that take chances. They are the ones that are visually engaging and laced with just enough comic dexterity to entertain toddlers and preteens alike. But they also have depth, meaning, and nuance to agree that the grown-up gains an appreciation on a whole new level. 
2015 marked a few key anniversary milestones in the world of animation. It's the 50th anniversary of both holiday classics Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer, as well as Charlie Brown's Christmas. And it's also the 45th anniversary of The Little Drummer Boy. And more importantly, at least as it relates to this discussion, it's the 20th anniversary of a feature film that was the first of its kind, and the beginning of a legacy for what is arguably the most successful studio in Hollywood, Disney Pixar's Toy Story. You've got a friend in me. You've got a friend in me. With such milestone anniversaries this holiday season, and with Pixar's recent release of The Good Dinosaur, I wanted to pay homage to the art form of animation and see what lessons we filmmakers can glean from two studios whose work cannot be more different. My name is Ron Dawson, and this is Radio Film School Shortens. Do you ever look at someone and wonder what is going on inside their head? Did you guys pick up on that? Sure mm-hmm. did. Something's wrong. We're going to find out what's happening, but we'll need support. Signal the husband. <clears throat> With a nice pass over the reef, comes across center ice. <clears throat> Uh-oh, she's looking at us. What did she say? What? Oh, uh, sorry, sir. No one was listening. Is it garbage night? Uh, we left the toilet seat up. What? What is it, woman? What? That was the hilarious scene from Disney Pixar's Inside Out, my favorite film of the year so far. That movie was Pixar returning to its stellar form as storytellers. Pixar's attention to detail in creating powerful stories is legendary. Up until about Cars 2, they were batting a thousand when it comes to a combination of both critical and commercial success. They had a misstep with the Cars sequel, and to some extent, I think Brave as well. But with Toy Story 3, and particularly with Inside Out, there was a return to form, and the creation of what I feel will go down in cinematic history as a masterpiece. A few episodes ago, I had a conversation with USC film grad and award-winning filmmaker Kevin Shahinian around the need for filmmakers to study the masters. During my call with Kevin, he and I discussed Pixar and the style that they convey, predominantly through their writing and storytelling. In animation, uh, you know, you talk about filmmaking, everything being sort of like intentional, like, okay, why do they do something? I think that's even more so in animation. With animation, absolutely everything you see in there was put there on purpose. And there's this scene where they go into this, the mind of the father and the mother. And, you know, in the little girl, the emotion of joy is sort of like at the helm of her mind. But in the mother, the emotion of sadness is at the helm. And in the father, the emotion of anger is at the helm. And it's not addressed in the movie at all. But it was just like this little, I don't know, this little um, distinguishing uh, difference between you know, the mother and the father and the girl that I thought was, I don't know, kind of poignant and profound. And it just kind of made me look at the film even on a deeper level. Like, what does it mean that for the mom, sadness was at the main helm of the mind and for the dad, anger was. And even the emotions themselves were more mature. Like in the little girl, the emotions are kind of like caricatures of themselves so like joy is overly joyful and sadness is overly sad whereas in the parents the emotions are more demure they're more uh you know the sadness person doesn't seem sad she just kind of seems like a normal person 
I don't know. So I, when you talk about why, it just kind of made me think about that. Yeah, I think Pixar has done some incredible things. Uh, I mean, the emotion they're able to bring in in their properties, like Toy Story, Wall-E. Like, I mean, I, I don't. I mean, they're definitely some geniuses over there. Um, really, and you can see like all the behind the scenes and in, in, in the DVDs and Blu-rays and stuff, how they think about their their films and how they're like meticulously painstaking. T- amount of time they spend like on every single shot and they're able to make films like for all audiences too right like it, like little children like would you know see one thing and adults see it see, see, see something else and you know when it comes to a when it comes to a particular i guess style um you know pixar is definitely right up there and you know i, I would say one of the things that kind of defines a pixar style is is the writing you know that you know they don't because there are other companies that make you know very high production value uh, animated films, but Pixar has this way of, you know, taking a high production value, but also incorporating story, you know, the written word in such a way that elevates it. You know what I mean? Yeah, I, I would say you're hitting on a very important point that made me realize that some of my favorite films, or the most eff- that I feel are the most effective films, are films with a very powerful message, but the message is is very well disguised uh in genre conventions and in plot um and in that you know spectacle side of how we balance story and spectacle um and it just sort of sneaks up on the audience and i think pixar does that very well their commentary on relationships and like stages of life and all that stuff kind of sneak up on you um and i think that's the that's the most effective way to deliver a message um, you know, but like uh, allow the genre conventions to push your plot forward um, and sort of sneak in the, the, the message you're trying to convey. Pixar's commitment to getting the story right is such that they will throw out years, even millions of dollars worth of work if a story is not going in the right direction. Earlier this year, I also had a heartfelt conversation with Slash Filmcast co-host Jeff Kanata about fatherhood, his favorite directors, how he got into movies, and the power of Pixar. It started with our discussion of Inside Out. I love it. I think it's a masterpiece. Yeah. Really yeah. I, it might be the best Pixar film ever. I, I, I definitely rank as my favorite Pixar film, and I've started calling it one of my favorite films, which isn't something I normally do, like I said earlier, but it, it, it just... What I loved about it is that it transcends, like, f- filmmaking. Like, it's yeah. it created this new language for how we talk about emotions and feelings. Mm-hmm. I was talking to my, my a brother a few weeks ago about it, and he was using the language of the film to kind of talk about some of the things that he dealt with as a kid growing up and just how – giving us that, that language to kind of talk about what we're dealing with – and even as a dad for myself, it changed immediately the way I was looking at my son when we walked out the theater. And I started thinking about, okay, what kind of memories am I creating for him? Like I was thinking about his little control room, right? And, yeah. It's and, so wonderful. And yeah. It's so powerful. Uh, that's one of the things I love about filmmaking in general. I tweeted this when I when I got out of that movie too and, and, and part of the reason that I was so emotional watching it throughout is is because I kept imagining parents who maybe didn't have a way 
to communicate with their kids or had kids that were acting out in certain ways and mm -hmm. right. all of a sudden had tools as a result of this movie to ask questions say you know to say who's 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 in control right now which which emotion is at the controls and to be able to just quantify it that way and and verbalize it that way and be able to give you a like a, a simple movie that you go that's a piece of summer entertainment to be able to hand a tool set to a, a parent like that I just found it to be so moving and one of the things that's really amazing about the story you know hearing Pete Doctor being interviewed about it was that the like 180 degree turn I'm sure you've heard this that they made in the story development like originally they were going down the path of having fear and joy mm -hmm. be the ones that go out into the mine and get out of the control room mm -hmm. and they were like they i guess they had a significant amount of development in that direction and then at some point they decided you know what this is not the right story it needs to be like you know joy and sadness right. and having the i guess the bravery if you will to throw everything they had done to go in that direction it, it, yeah it really reinforces that the, the mythos of, of Pixar as far as uh, their commitment to story and their willingness to to get things right. It's so inspiring. Um, but yeah, I mean, the central message of that movie that it isn't about just pushing sadness down, right? It's about embracing sadness and working right. sadness and joy go hand in hand. It's just, it's absolutely beautiful. Pixar isn't the only animation studio who are master storytellers and have created a definable sense of style. I mean, when you think about like a style, like South Park definitely has one. Like, you know, like visually oh, yeah. and, and the way they write and stuff. And, well, it's, and it's just irreverent. They're, you know, it's like the crappiest, you know, hey, we're, we're you know, because the thing about them is they're master storytellers. Those guys are incredible. By now, regular listeners to the show know of my good friend, filmmaker, dad, and USC Film School grad, J.D. Cochran. Our hours-long conversations slash debates about films are legendary. And we can go on a tangent like it's nobody's business. I had set up a call with him to discuss his influence on me quitting my job and becoming a full-time video producer. And one of the first times I attempted to have this conversation with him, we got off in a 45-minute tangent about South Park. That's not four to five minutes, that's four T five minutes. Cuarenta cinco, as in five times nine. So as any good podcast producer would do, I made an episode out of it. It's safe to say that that tangent was the reason for this animation episode. The thing I mean about them being uh, master storytellers is they're also not afraid to tackle the subjects that are uh, that people that people try to be politically correct about and don't want to address or don't want to talk about. They'll go there. Like one of my favorite episodes is the one with the Crips and the Bloods. I haven't seen that one. Oh, I haven't man. really been able to watch it since I got married. It's not this, really. Yeah, well, this this came out years ago. This is a. This is probably like ten years old, but it was one of the best episodes because it was when Christopher Reeves was still alive, mm -hmm. and so he was going on Larry King, and he's talking about stem cell research, and they're like, "Larry, look here," and he's like showing Larry's in his wheelchair. And he wait, basically, so wait, this is the cartoon? The cartoon. Oh, okay, got it. So they have a cartoon just for a reason. So he, he gets on Larry King and, and, you know, they have the cartoon Larry King, whatever. And Christopher Reeves is like, yes, Larry, we've been, you know, making amazing advances in stem cell research. 
And then he he said, look at this. And he like lifted, he like barely lifted his index finger while it was on a wheelchair. And I said, oh, wow, that's very impressive. But the thing that was so messed up about it was that they had Christopher, someone came in and gave like Christopher Reeves a baby corpse. And he like ate baby corpse right out of the, the stem cells, right out of the baby. And then he said, now watch Larry. And he's able to lift his hand. And Larry said, oh my God. And he, you know, it, you know, it became this amazing revelation jd goes on to tell me about the episode and i end up laughing so hard i had to leave the microphone the rest of the story plays in full after the credits but suffice it to say south park can do some really twisted and messed up but that actually speaks specifically to the point jd continues they're not even worried so much about you know the animation and matching up the lips it's it's part of their whole style i want to say they don't really care you know give a f about it or whatever they don't really care so they you know because for them it's about the story but then a cool thing that's kind of happened in that sense is that even their little, you know, tacky, cheap-looking characters, that's their style now. It's sure. a great style. It's amazing. I've always been a huge fan of satire and the use of satire to make stronger points about about whatever, about religion, about politics, about Yeah, and know. they they hit it all the time. I mean, every I mean, you will it's rare that you see an episode where they're not really like putting some biting commentary into their cartoon and it's so audacious you know it's like i mean to go after christopher reeve like that and then you know just like you know and i'm sure that they're all for stem cell research they just were poking fun at the whole concept like you know you know all these people think that that's what's going to happen like people are eating babies and they're going to become monsters you know it's like you know they they play on all those conservative you know uh fears about what it really isn't i mean so you have that in the episode along with the crips and you know gang violence (laughs) black crime it's like it's amazing that they, you know, would even, you know, no one else wants to touch that stuff. Right. They just go right after it. And I love it. And, and they go, I mean, they go after the liberals, conservatives. They go after that. And, man, nobody is safe, dude. There's, there are shows that I've seen, like, like the whole Tom Cruise in the closet. He goes over the kind of, Tom Cruise, please come out of the closet. And the whole episode, he's like locked in. <laughs> I think it's Kyle's closet. And he's like, he won't come out. And he's like, but dad, Tom Cruise is in my closet. And then the police show up. Our megaphones, Tom Cruise, please come out of the closet. <laughs> you know, it's just like, you know, it's like they just don't care. It's like they'll talk about anybody. I would never want to get on their bad side. You know, a lot of people probably get bent out of shape and twisted by what they, you know, are offended by what, you know, South Park does. But that's what I love about them. It's like they, they never, I mean, to me, it's like they're always jarring. It's like, oh my God, I can't believe they just did that. I can't believe, you know, but they're always making points. It's not like they just throw some crap out and there's no message behind it, you know? So, I don't know, I love them. I think they're one of the, they're one of my, you know, one of my favorite shows. From Pixar to South Park. You probably can have two diametrically opposed animation studios. One makes emotionally poignant and powerful, visually masterful, feature-length and short films that make you feel good. The other makes what appear to be amateurishly drawn television cartoons that contain potty humor, offensive language, and often make you squirm in discomfort for laughing. But what they both have in common, in spades, is a singular sense of style and a passion for telling great stories. Sticks.
Radio Film School is produced by me with production help from producer Chris Huslage and production assistant Tommy Ferguson. Music is curated from freemusicarchive.org. Links to artists and tracks are in the show notes. We're supported in part by Song Freedom. When you need to legally license high-quality music from every genre, including Top 40, look no further than songfreedom.com radio and use offer code radio to get a free GOAT-level standard license worth $30. If you like what we're doing on the show, please leave us a rating and review in iTunes. Giving us a five-star rating and a great review would be the best Christmas-slash-Hanukkah-slash-Kwanzaa present you could give a guy right now. Stay tuned after the credits for my full, funny, and insightful South Park discussion with JD. In the meantime, you know the deal. If the story sucks, I don't care what you shot it with or cut it on. As promised, here's my full conversation with JD about South Park. And given the pending holidays, the beginning of our conversation about South Park's Mr. Hanky episode is a great way to start us off. Man, we would spend like hours, like three, four o'clock in the morning, talking and debating about films and stuff. Yeah, I know. And you're, and you're, it's fun, man. Yeah, yeah. Um, One of my best memories is when we uh, saw the Mr. Hanky episode. Oh, my to... goodness. That, oh. I have never laughed that hard in my life. I thought I was literally going to pee on myself. <laughs> I remember. Because I remember we were, okay, we were working at, we were working on the Screenplay Systems, like, 15th anniversary right. video. So this is back in '97, and uh, Mr. Hanky, that was um, what's the card? What's that name? Of that South card? Park. South Park, right? And so, guys, it's been so long now. There's probably some people out there who haven't seen it. This was the episode where Mr. Hanky is like this poop. Well, yeah, poop. Kyle, Kyle has issues because he's he's Jewish, and all his friends are Protestant or are Christian, basically, and um, so they're all celebrating Christmas, and he's not celebrating Christmas, so. Psychologically, he gravitates towards <laughs> to becoming a fecophiliac. He has his friend, <laughs> Mr. Hanky, who, uh, who is his boy, you know, his imaginary Christmas poo that he <laughs> reverts to whenever right. he gets stressed during the holidays. <laughs> Even now. <laughs> he went to the bathroom and just smeared up the whole bathroom with poop right. everywhere. Yeah, I remember. <laughs> words like Noel on the mirror. <laughs> Yeah, because I remember, like we were editing. I guess we were taking a break or something. No, and... was, it, no, we weren't taking a break. This is what happened. What we happened? I thought we it. took a break. I was editing, and right. I was like, I think you were taking a break or something. I had something I had to do because you know right. a lot of times you're editing. There's like chunks of right, right. business work or whatever you got to take care of. And you're just sitting there, and so you were watching South Park, and I just kept hearing hello. But and I was like, what in the world is that stupid sound? Like, you know, what what, what dumb character are they? Because they didn't show you Mr. Hanky at first. You just kept saying hello. You hear this voice in the background, and then at, at one point, I turned over and looked. I think you started laughing. I turned over looking and see what you were laughing at, and I saw Mr. Hanky, and we we both just fell right. out and died. I remember that. I remember. Oh, I just remember getting right? on the ground like I can't physically get up. <laughs> right. I remember seeing you on the ground. <laughs> it was so because I had never seen anything like that. It was like crazy. Like there was this poop. They, hey man, they pushed the limit, dude. They pushed the limit. Jumping they... around, uh, <laughs> and like smearing up the wall. <laughs> right. Like this Mr. Hanky song. And his hands were all have poop on it. It was just crazy. It was nasty. I'm Mr. Hanky, the Christmas poop. Season's greetings to all of you. 
first of all, they're different than a lot of the uh, the cartoon shows that are done in the in the in the fact that they actually work on uh, episodes that are very current. Like I'm talking about like weeks. So if there's something topical in the news and they're in their season, mm. they're going to hit it. You know, if it's three weeks out or whatever, they're going to make a story about it. We're usually like the Simpsons or other great shows or any, any other normally cartoon uh, show that's out there. They send the animation away to like Korea or Japan or somewhere foreign where it's cheaper for them to do the labor. Oh, really? It I takes like, it. oh yeah, it takes months. So like when you watch a Simpsons episode or you watch, um, and I'm just throwing shows out because I don't know how everybody works, but I, I'm fairly certain like The Simpsons or other shows, you know, they're uh, they can't do really topical stuff like 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 right now they could be doing something on Donald Trump at South Park, you know, for all the craziness he just said or whatever, and it's very <laughs> right. topical. And it, it, you know, it, whereas like someone like The Simpsons, they might be doing something on police violence, you know, but that's right. like what you know, whatever that you know, it's months. It's already been out there for six months. For now, I mean, until it know, happens you know, again. Next it week. got really hot like six months ago, and it's right. been, it stayed there. So that would be a great topic, but that's the thing I love about South Park. They can pick something up and then just they do everything in house. They they have you know they and they kill them. So they they burn them. In. You're talking about staying up till three and four. It's it's like they're always in film school. At least at least from the documentaries and stuff I've seen, it's like they really right. you know push the limit in terms of okay, it's our season. We got to get something out. And it, like when they're in their season, they're they're at the shop, you know, 20 hours a day, just working and writing. The whole thing is, they, you know, South Park comes up with these preposterous concepts, and then they, you know, they at the end, they'll tie it up. And so at the end, you know, Timmy and the and the other crippled kid were able to bring the um, Bloods and Crips together. And <laughs> they, somehow they got locked in a, a, a youth center for the night, both gangs. But they ended up not fighting. You know, they came together, you know, saw through their differences, whatever, yada, yada. And on the flip side, Christopher Reeve... <laughs> They kept getting Christopher Reeve and Larry King, and he kept becoming stronger and stronger. So he kept like eating babies. Oh <laughs> and by the end of the episode, he was like, he was like Superman. He was jumping around <laughs> and flying. And Gene Hackman, Gene Hackman was protesting. I mean, he had the League of Actors, like the 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 what do you call the League of um, the Super League? Justice it was League? like the League of, of Actors that were against Christopher Reeve, and they're hunting him down, trying to stop him. <laughs> He was like, he's like, you'll never stop me, Gene Hackman. He's lifting up cars and throwing them down the street. <laughs> I mean, so you know, <laughs> that <laughs> I'm telling you, man. You get to, if you get to see that episode, it's one of the greatest episodes ever. <laughs> I was dying. I mean, especially growing up in Long Beach in L.A., where you see the you know the Christmas blood start. It was it was hilarious. Oh man, this call with JD went for about an hour. Where in addition to South Park, we talked about Do the Right Thing, M Night Shyamalan, and the Wachowski siblings. But none of these topics, nearly an hour's worth of conversation, it was even the reason I called him in the first place. As I mentioned earlier in the episode, I had meant to get his take on the role he played in encouraging me to start my video business and pursue it full time which we finally did get to that you can hear in the post-credits bonus segment of RFS-005, the In Search of Style episode. But as of this recording, we hadn't, which is pretty much par for the course for us. Hey, um, JD, can I call you back? Yeah. Do you have time? Because I have to go pick up my son. And, okay. Uh, and as usual, we end up getting off. Talk, I know, talking about a whole bunch of extemporaneous shit. We ain't even dealing with your questions. <laughs> right. Did we answer a question yet? I don't even know. We haven't even gotten to the I reason know. I called you. 
See, this is what it's right. like. This is why we had conversations at three or four o'clock in the morning.